Chapter Twenty Five of the Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Undine Marvell, for the next few months, tasted all the accumulated bitterness of failure. After January, the drifting hordes of her compatriots had scattered to the four quarters of the globe, leaving Paris to resume, under its low gray sky, its compacter winter personality. Noting, from her more and more deserted corner, each least sign of the social revival, Undine felt herself as stranded and baffled as after the ineffectual summers of her girlhood. She was not without possible alternatives, but the sense of what she had lost took the savour from all that was left. She might have attached herself to some migratory group winged for Italy or Egypt, but the prospect of travel did not in itself appeal to her, and she was doubtful of its social benefit. She lacked the adventurous curiosity which seeks its occasion in the unknown, and though she could work doggedly for a given object, the obstacles to be overcome had to be as distinct as the prize. Her one desire was to get back an equivalent of the precise value she had lost in ceasing to be Ralph Marvell's wife. Her new visiting card, bearing her Christian name in place of her husband's, was like the coin of a debased currency testifying to her diminished trading capacity. Her restricted means, her vacant days, all the minor irritations of her life, were as nothing compared to this sense of a lost advantage. Even in the narrowed field of a Parisian winter, she might have made herself a place in some more or less extra-social world, but her experiments in this line gave her no pleasure proportioned to the possible derogation. She feared to be associated with the wrong people, and scented a shade of disrespect in every amicable advance. The more pressing attentions of one or two men she had formerly known filled her with a glow of outraged pride, and for the first time in her life she felt that even solitude might be preferable to certain kinds of society. Since ill health was the most plausible pretext for seclusion, it was almost a relief to find that she was really growing nervous and sleeping badly. The doctor she summoned advised her trying a small quiet place on the Riviera, not too near the sea and thither in the early days of December she transported herself with her maid and an omnibus load of luggage. The place disconcerted her by being really small and quiet, and for a few days she struggled against the desire for flight. She had never before known a world as colourless and negative as that of the large white hotel where everybody went to bed at nine, and donkey rides over stony hills were the only alternative to slow drives along dusty roads. Many of the dwellers in this temple of repose found even these exercises too stimulating, and preferred to sit for hours under the palms in the garden, playing patience, embroidering, or reading odd volumes of Tauschnitz. Undine, driven by despair to an inspection of the hotel bookshelves, discovered that scarcely any work they contained was complete. But this did not seem to trouble the readers, who continued to feed their leisure with mutilated fiction from which they occasionally raised their eyes to glance mistrustfully at the new arrival sweeping the garden gravel with her frivolous draperies. The inmates of the hotel were of different nationalities, but their racial differences were levelled by the stamp of a common mediocrity. All differences of tongue, of custom, of physiognomy, disappeared in this deep community of insignificance, which was like some secret bond, with the manifold signs and passwords of its ignorances and its imperceptions. It was not the heterogeneous mediocrity of the American summer hotel, where the lack of any standard is the nearest approach to a tie, but an organized codified dullness, 
in conscious possession of its rights, and strong in the voluntary ignorance of any others. It took Undine a long time to accustom herself to such an atmosphere, and meanwhile she fretted, fumed, and flaunted, or abandoned herself to long periods of fruitless brooding. Sometimes a flame of anger shot up in her, dismally illuminating the path she had travelled, and the blank wall to which it led. At other moments past and present were enveloped in a dull fog of rancour, which distorted and faded even the image she presented to her morning mirror. There were days when every young face she saw left in her a taste of poison. But when she compared herself with the specimens of her sex who plied their languid industries under the palms, or looked away as she passed them in hall or staircase, her spirits rose, and she rang for her maid, and dressed herself in her newest and vividest. These were unprofitable triumphs, however. She never made one of her attacks on the organized disapproval of the community without feeling she had lost ground by it, and the next day she would lie in bed and send down capricious orders for food, which her maid would presently remove untouched, with instructions to transmit her complaints to the landlord. Sometimes the events of the past year, ceaselessly revolving through her brain, became no longer a subject for criticism or justification, but simply a series of pictures monotonously unrolled. Hour by hour, in such moods, she relived the incidents of her flight with Peter Van Degen, the part of her career that, since it had proved a failure, seemed least like herself and most difficult to justify. She had gone away with him, and had lived with him for two months. She, Undine Marvell, to whom respectability was the breath of life, to whom such follies had always been unintelligible, and therefore inexcusable. She had done this incredible thing, and she had done it from a motive that seemed at the time as clear, as logical, as free from the distorting mists of sentimentality as any of her father's financial enterprises. It had been a bold move. But it had been as carefully calculated as the happiest Wall Street stroke. She had gone away with Peter, because, after the decisive scene in which she had put her power to the test, to yield to him seemed the surest means of victory. Even to her practical intelligence, it was clear that an immediate dash to Dakota might look too calculated, and she had preserved her self-respect by telling herself that she was really his wife, and in no way to blame if the law delayed to ratify the bond. She was still persuaded of the justness of her reasoning, but she now saw that it had left certain risks out of account. Her life with Van Degen had taught her many things. The two had wandered from place to place, spending a great deal of money always more and more money. For the first time in her life she had been able to buy everything she wanted. For a while this had kept her amused and busy, but presently she began to perceive that her companion's view of their relation was not the same as hers. She saw that he had always meant it to be an unavowed tie, screened by Mrs. Shallum's companionship and Clare's careless tolerance, and that on those terms he would have been ready to shed on their adventure the brightest blaze of notoriety but since Undine had insisted on being carried off like a sentimental schoolgirl, he meant to shroud the affair in mystery, and was as zealous in concealing their relation as she was bent on proclaiming it. In the powerful novels which Popple was fond of lending her, she had met with increasing frequency the type of heroine who scorns to love clandestinely, and proclaims the sanctity of passion and the moral duty of obeying its call. Undine had been struck by these arguments as justifying and even ennobling her course and had let Peter understand that she had been actuated by the highest motives in openly associating her life with his. 
but he had opposed a placid insensibility to these illusions, and had persisted in treating her as though their journey were the kind of escapade that a man of the world is bound to hide. She had expected him to take her to all the showy places where couples like themselves are relieved from a too-sustained contemplation of nature by the distractions of the restaurant and the gaming-table. But he had carried her from one obscure corner of Europe to another, shunning fashionable hotels and crowded watering-places, and displaying an ingenuity in the discovery of the unvisited and the out-of-season that gave their journey an odd resemblance to her melancholy wedding-tour. She had never for a moment ceased to remember that the Dakota divorce court was the objective point of this later honeymoon, and her allusions to the fact were as frequent as prudence permitted. Peter seemed in no way disturbed by them. He responded with expressions of increasing tenderness, or the purchase of another piece of jewellery, and though Undine could not remember his ever voluntarily bringing the subject of their marriage, he did not shrink from her recurring mention of it. He seemed merely too steeped in present well-being to think of the future, and she ascribed this to the fact that his faculty of enjoyment could not project itself beyond the moment. Her business was to make each of their days so agreeable that when the last came he should be conscious of a void to be bridged over as rapidly as possible, and when she thought this point had been reached, she packed her trunks and started for Dakota. The next picture to follow was that of the dull months in the western divorce town, where, to escape loneliness and avoid comment, she had cast in her lot with Mabel Lipscomb, who had lately arrived there on the same errand. Undine, at the outset, had been sorry for the friend whose new venture seemed likely to result so much less brilliantly than her own, but compassion had been replaced by irritation, as Mabel's unpruned vulgarities, her enormous encroaching satisfaction with herself and her surroundings, began to pervade every corner of their provisional household. Undine, during the first months of her exile, had been sustained by the fullest confidence in her future. When she had parted from Van Degen, she had felt sure he meant to marry her, and the fact that Mrs. Lipscomb was fortified by no similar hope made her easier to bear with. Undine was almost ashamed that the unwooed Mabel should be the witness of her own felicity, and planned to send her off on a trip to Denver when Peter should announce his arrival. But the weeks passed, and Peter did not come. Mabel, on the whole, behaved well in this contingency. Undine, in her first exultation, had confided all her hopes and plans to her friend, but Mabel took no undue advantage of the confidence. She was even tactful in her loud, fond, clumsy way, with a tact that insistently boomed and buzzed about its victim's head. But one day she mentioned that she had asked to dinner a gentleman from Little Rock who had come to Dakota with the same object as themselves, and whose acquaintance she had made through her lawyer. The gentleman from Little Rock came to dine, and within a week Undine understood that Mabel's future was assured. If Van Degen had been at hand, Undine would have smiled with him at poor Mabel's infatuation and her suitor's crudeness. But Van Degen was not there. He made no sign, he sent no excuse, he simply continued to absent himself, and it was Undine who, in due course, had to make way for Mrs. Lipscomb's caller, and sit upstairs with a novel, while the drawing-room below was given up to the enacting of an actual love-story. Even then, even to the end, Undine had to admit that Mabel had behaved beautifully. But it is comparatively easy to behave beautifully when one is getting what one wants, and when someone else, who has not always been altogether kind, is not. The net result of Mrs. Lipscomb's magnanimity was that when, on the day of parting, 
she drew undine to her bosom with the hand on which her new engagement ring blazed undine hated her as she hated everything else connected with her vain exile in the wilderness End of chapter 25